please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. For any of you using the black Bibles around you, Leviticus can be found on page 84. We'll be in chapter 6 and 7 today. So pages 84, 85, and following. If you're not accustomed to using the Bible, the chapter numbers are the large black bold numbers, and then there's verse numbers, smaller numbers. We'll be referring to them. I will at least during this message. At Embassy Church, we're committed to preaching through the Word of God. I don't think and sit around every day thinking, all right, what should I give to the people? It's obvious. We just, the Bible, that's what we give. And so many of you are down with that, and that's why you're here. And if you're new, that's what we're about. As a church, we've been working through Leviticus for the last several weeks. We will take a pause from Leviticus. Pause is the appropriate word. This is not a stop. So this is the final message of this mini-series of Leviticus. I know there's a lot of awe in your heart. In all honesty, several of you have told me how much you've appreciated the messages. I know I have. I've appreciated hearing the messages from Nate and tag-teaming on this series. Lord willing, next week we'll pick up our bigger study in the Gospel according to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. So that's the plan for next Sunday, is to pick up where we left off in chapter 18. For anyone interested to come back next week, that's where we should be. So as we open up to Leviticus, to this final message of this first section of the book, I do hope to return to Leviticus again when we take another break in Matthew and hopefully, Lord willing, make our way through the whole book of Leviticus, which I know all of you really want. Some have said reading Leviticus is not too much different from reading a manual. You know, you're reading some sort of manual for how to put together your dresser from Ikea or something, and you're just like, here's instructions for how to do stuff. It's probably better than Ikea because there's not a lot of words on those instructions, so maybe think of a different manual. And then I want you to imagine that you're reading through the manual and you're getting rather bored and then you turn the page and then it's almost as if the manual forgot that it just said everything you just read. Welcome to Leviticus chapter 6 and 7. One of the reasons why this is a neglected, often not preached book of the Bible. Because it's repetitive, because it doesn't just really relate very well, but here we are, it is God's word, and I'm hoping that today isn't just, we'll make our way through, but it'll be the best hits of the Leviticus series so far. In fact, that would be another way to title the sermon. Instead of the priestly offerings, you could scratch it out and say, today's sermon is the best hits of the Leviticus series, because we're basically going to reread everything that we've covered so far, so I figured, well... We could just skip this part of God's word. I'm not a fan of doing that sort of thing. So why don't we just review what we've covered, especially since it's new material for a lot of us. So if you've not been with us, today's your lucky day. We're going to go over everything that we've covered the last several weeks in this one message and hopefully sum it up. And I told someone before the service, my hope is that you get a lot of Jesus today. Like a lot. Because if the best hits of the Leviticus has hopefully been the Jesus part, so, unfortunately, we're not going to dive into all the details of all the differences of this text and what came before it. We will read it. I will make some observations from the text, and then we're going to get to Jesus. So that's the plan. 
And I'm going to start with a big idea before I read the first section. The big idea for this message, if you're trying to hang your hat on something and say, what was the message about other than big hits of the Leviticus, Leviticus series? It is, Jesus' priestly offering transforms our priestly service. Jesus' priestly offering transforms our priestly service. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Leviticus 6 and 7, the passage we're going to cover today. Because it is all about the priestly duties, which is why the sermon title in the bulletin does call it the priestly offerings. Chapters 1 through 5 and into the first half of 6 is offerings of worship for the average, everyday Israelite churchgoer, congregation person, so your average lay person, not priests. Then we hear instructions to the priests in chapters 6 and 7, and that's what we're covering today. But the material is so similar to what was covered in chapters 1 through 5, the only difference is who it's targeted to, priests. So then, before we read it, with the big idea in mind, what's then the application for us? Well, there's two, and it's summarized in this sentence. The two applications for us are the priests that are being talked to here are foreshadowing like a trailer of a movie of a, a greater story to come of a greater high priest, namely Jesus. So when you read chapter 6 and 7, you should be thinking, okay, so here's some Old Testament priests, but there's going to be a greater priest, and that's Jesus. Second application, not only do these passages point to Jesus, the great high priest, the great anointed one. You'll notice that language when we read along. The anointed priest will do this. Jesus is that, that's the word Messiah, by the way. Messiah, to talk about somebody that's been anointed, anointed as a king or anointed as a priest. Jesus is both a priest king. He is the anointed king. He is the anointed priest. And that's the way the New Testament talks about him. But guess who else the New Testament says is priests? Answer, us. That's how I opened the service. Remember that? We have gathered this morning to boldly approach the throne of grace because we're priests. So there's a second fulfillment of this text in the New Testament. Not only is Jesus the great high priest, but you and I are a collection of priests. This is why I sit down there and not up here in some sort of throne chair and look down upon you and say, I am the mighty pastor priest. You all need to come to me for your prayers. We don't have that sort of setup at this church. We have a setup of we are a collection of priests and I serve as a teacher priest more so than your teaching. But all of us are priests. All of us should take on that identity and let it transform us. So then, the big idea is that Jesus' priestly offering, what he did as a priest, should transform what you do as a priest. Simple enough? Well, let's see it in the text. Hopefully I didn't make this up, and we see this is, in fact, what God's Word is saying to us. So let's start. In chapter 6, verse 8, we're going to read the first little section here on the burnt offering. Chapter 6, 8 through 13. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be 
on the hearth of, on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put on his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Emphasis there. Did you notice he repeated himself a few times? The fire is not supposed to go out, priests. Don't let the fire go out. So by way of review, the burnt offering is also called what? The ascension offering because the Hebrew word is olah, and olah means to ascend up. So you could think of it either as a burnt offering because the entire animal or grain that's being offered is being completely consumed or burned in fire, which is why you have a translation burnt offering. But in another sense, it's a bad translation because the word is not burnt offering. The word is ascension offering because it ascends up. It completely is consumed on an altar, and then the fire and smoke transcends and transforms, and it goes up to the heavens. It's about being in the presence of God with a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. So we heard this in chapter 1 of Leviticus. Now we're getting instructions for the priests. You can be thankful that these priests were to wear clothes. I don't know if there's an application there for us, but the point is priests in the Old Testament time, they did a lot of their priestly duties in the nude. So these priests are told not to be like those pagan priests. They're to wear clothes, and they're to wear certain kinds of clothes whenever they're dealing with the ashes or when they're in the altar area, and you see those instructions and whatever symbolism there is other than the fact that the, the duties are holy and even the very ashes of the burnt offering are holy. So notice the very careful instructions being given to even the ashes in our text. And so that's the burnt or ascension offering. When we covered this offering in chapter 1, we talked about how costly it is because you have to burn the entire thing. Nobody gets any bites to eat from it. No one gets any contribution from this burnt offering. Many times we think about animal sacrifices in the Old Testament and we think it is, oh, that's gross, that's barbaric, that's so foreign and far off. Not true. You and I make animal sacrifices all the time when we barbecue, when you cook out, when you eat meat, which some of you are vegetarians, but most of you are not. And every time you eat, some animal's getting slaughtered, and it's being offered, and it's being eaten. Most of the animal sacrifices that are in the book of Leviticus were eaten. They were provided as food for the priests. And so we're going to read that as we go along. But this offering is not eaten by anybody but God. Completely burnt and consumed. I want you to imagine bringing in a portion of your salary and just giving it on an altar and watching it burn in flames. Anybody like, sign me up for that. Next time we do an offering, let's get a fire pit out here and let's just watch the money burn in flames. That's what it would feel like 
to take a piece of your property. When you don't have a monetary system, you're living in an agricultural society that has all of their funds wrapped up in their property. You take a piece of that property and you put it on the altar and say, this is all for you, God, just for the pleasing aroma in your nostrils. It's costly. It symbolizes the death of the animal because if you remember, you place your hands on the animal not to put your sins on it, but to say all of me is being transferred to all of you and then all of me is being dedicated to God in a a, a sacrifice or offering God my life. It is done. I'm done with pursuing my dreams and ambitions. I am giving myself wholly to you. And that's what the whole laying of the hands on the animal for the burnt offering is about. If you keep reading in Leviticus, there is a laying on of hands that's about sins. That's different than this laying on of hands. And so that's why it's called the ascension offering, because you are going to be vicariously substituted by this animal. You are represented by this animal, and it goes up to God because it's, I want to go up to God. I want to dwell in the presence of God, and I want to be a transformed, pleasing aroma to God. Therefore, you and I should realize that this offering has massive implications for how we think about Jesus and our priestly sacrifice. What was the repeated refrain in our text? Keep the fire burning. I could not get this old Christian song out of my head. Keep the candle burning, keep the candle. If you've ever heard that song, it will be even more funny because it's like one of those old Christian songs. Anyway, that's the song you want to get stuck in your head. Keep the fire burning. Keep putting logs on the fire. It's the same altar where you would also add more sacrifices on top of it. So it's as if all of the offerings are on top of the burnt offering. This is like the foundational, fundamental offering because it's morning and evening. It's twice on the Sabbath day. All the other ones are offered on top of it. It's always burning. And in fact, the reason why it's always burning, as far as we can tell, is because God was the one who lit the first one. When you read in Leviticus chapter 9, fire falls down and it burns the offering for the first time. And so these instructions are to say, God started the fire and offered up a way for you to dwell in his presence, and so you keep that going. You don't let it burn out. Can you see the implications now? Jesus Christ has been made for us, our high priest, who is always interceding for us. Turn on the screen to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. We just read this. Adam read for you this verse. Jesus is a greater high priest. Why? Because he doesn't die. Amen? He's alive. We celebrate Easter, not just on Easter. We celebrate Easter on November 3rd, 2019, because Jesus is alive. And he is always living to intercede as our high priest continually. The fire of Jesus never gets snuffed out. That's good. Jesus is the ultimate ascension offering that stands before the Father as a pleasing aroma on our behalf, if you put your hands, not on an animal, but on the cross of Christ and say, Jesus, I want you to be my ascension offering, it will be pleasing and it will be permanent. What a difference will that make in your service to God as a priest? If you know that Christ's sacrifice 
is ever constantly pleasing the Father. Would you feel afraid to fail if you knew that you already had a sacrifice that is constantly pleasing the Father? I think you would look about your attempts at priestly service to God very differently if you knew that you already had right now a permanent offering that God was pleased with and that you're attached to it. It's not just, oh, well, that was good for Jesus. Good job, Jesus. We're connected to this. This is our offering. We're laying our hands on Jesus to say, that's my offering to you, God. Or you could just give your own offering and that would probably not be as pleasing of an aroma. It should make all the difference if you know that tomorrow the Father is pleased. Tuesday morning when you wake up, regardless of whatever troubles and sorrows come your way, whatever failings you had, Tuesday morning, Jesus is there and the Father is pleased. Next week and for all of eternity, keep telling yourself, that he's there right now, exalted above the heavens. One more passage before we move on, Ephesians 2. This is the gospel. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace so that you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you believe this is true, that God has provided salvation from your sins and trespasses, then you are seated with Christ. That means he sees us and he sees Christ and he is pleased with Christ. So may your service to Jesus and to God the Father be transformed by Jesus' service to you. Let's move on to the next offering, the grain offering. Chapter 6, verses 14 to 23. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and one shall take it from a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons, shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offering it is a thing most holy. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offering. Whatever touches them shall become holy. This is called the grain offering in the text we just read. Again, it's the same issue we had with the previous one. It is made of grain, which is a fine way to think about this offering, but the word in Hebrew is tribute. And so if you look at the next slide, we learned about the tribute offering, that tribute is about loyalty. It is about gratitude and remembrance and honor and dependence. Nate preached this message in Leviticus chapter 2, and he talked about, have you ever given a thank you card to someone? Have you ever gone to a retirement or graduation party? Have you ever paid taxes and 
on and on. He gave a bunch of examples of we do give tribute in all kinds of ways. This is not a foreign concept, maybe a, a word you don't use every day when you're hanging out with your friends or your coworkers. And so, what tributes did you give this weekend? I mean, yes, it's not a normal word, but we do this. Thank offerings, thank you cards, graduation parties, we're giving gratitude, paying homage and loyalty or honor or remembrance of a thing that was done. The tribute offering is made of grain and it took time to prepare. It, it was something that required work. And then, this is the key idea. I think this was the best hit from that message. This offering is to God. It is for God. Just like the ascension offering, it is all for him. But notice this. God gives some back. Read that text one more time. Look down at verse 16. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offering. Who gets the grain offering? God. All of it goes to God again. But God in his kindness and in his grace gives a portion of it back to the priests. This is the grace of the gospel. In miniature form, Jesus is given to God the Father and it is for God and his satisfying his wrath and his judgment and his mercy and all that God's doing in the gospel. The gospel is about satisfying God. But then God gives us Jesus back because he's gracious, because God loves to pour out gifts to his children. And so the grain tribute offering pictures the good news of Jesus coming and satisfying all the food cravings of God, if you want to use that metaphor, and God saying, oh, there's so much left over. Let me share bountifully this feast. And there in every week, we take the bread and we take the cup. Why do we take bread and a cup? Because Jesus is our grain offering. Jesus should be memorialized every Sunday when we gather and we remember his body is the bread. His blood is the cup. And we pay tribute to him. We pay tribute to what he's done. We are not re-sacrificing Jesus over again when we give the bread and the cup every week. We don't need another sacrifice. God was pleased with that sacrifice and says, this sacrifice is so good, I'm going to give more for you all to share in it and just rejoice in it and pay tribute with it. So at the end of this service, you'll have another opportunity to take the bread and take the cup and say, God, I want to join in on this tribute offering of Jesus' body and his blood for us. This reality should transform our priestly service to God the Father. Is your service to God for you? Is it for recognition? Is it for just the good of what you would be offering to that person? Or is your priestly service to God first and foremost, God, this is for you? I don't care what I get back. I don't care if you bless me after this. Things might go bad after I do this, but God, this is for you because you are worthy of it. You are worth it. Is that the way you think about your service 
to God? Or do we give half-hearted tributes, half-hearted work and worship? Jesus gave himself fully and completely. He did it willingly and joyfully. A year ago, there was a film that came out. Several of you saw it. I was interviewed to be a part of it, The American Gospel in Christ Alone. There is a second American Gospel film that is almost done. I got to see a clip of it. I'm very excited about it. It is called American Gospel, Christ Crucified. The clip I saw was about 13 minutes, and it is about whether or not the cross is cosmic child abuse. Is the cross of Jesus dying for our sins as a tribute to God because God is so bloodthirsty that he's looking around and saying, look at all these sins in the world. Well, I need blood. Blood, blood, blood. We sang that a bunch today, didn't we? What's wrong with us? Because the reason why the blood of Jesus is precious is not because God's looking around and being like, I need to have some blood somewhere. All right, let's just punish my son. The son is second person of the Trinity. He is God, and he willingly laid down his life. Remember these words in John's gospel. I lay down my life. I take it up again. Nobody takes my life from me. When Jesus offered himself to the Father, it was not because, well, if I have to. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, it was for the joy set before him. He wanted to do this because he, being God, wanted to make things right. He wanted to achieve and accomplish salvation. He wanted us and all that it brings. He wanted to glorify the Father. He wanted so much more than what he could get if he just remained where he was in the heavens. He left the Father's throne humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not because he was forced to by a bloodthirsty father with cosmic child abuse, but because of a willing offering from the second person of the Trinity. This is the tribute offering. Jesus was happy and pleased to offer his life, to pay tribute to God. Let's move on to our third offering, the sin offering, this is chapter 6, verses 24 to 30. So from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any shall wash, when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is broiled shall be broken. But if it is broiled in a bronze vessel, then shall be scored and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. This next offering is the sin offering, and it is an appropriate translation because the word chetat means sin. 
but it also has a connotation of purification. And when you and I hear the word sin, we often think of moral wrongs done. Um, And so when you think of sin offering, you think, oh, somebody must have done something wrong, and that's why they need to offer this sin offering. True, it is for sins. However, it also includes things when you become ceremonially unclean. We talked about how if someone were to have a child and they had a baby, they would become, because of the blood and all the other things, ceremonially unclean, and therefore they'd have to go through a ritual system for, I'm sure, for some degree, for like just general, you know, cleanliness and, you know, taking care of your body and whatever else that was good for every human to do, and we all have these kind of cleansing rituals. Um, But I think more so because the Word of God was teaching them about there are clean things and there are unclean things. There are clean animals and there are unclean animals. And there's a lot of mystery as to, well, why is this clean and this unclean? And they're just like, because it is. Because I'm just teaching you something. Because the Word of God in this section of the Word of God is really just somewhat arbitrarily teaching you. There's categories of cleanliness and uncleanliness, and that kind of cleanliness is about a ritual ceremonial cleanliness. And so if you remember, we talked about the idea of being defiled, or I use the illustration of a doctor that's going to go through a decontamination ceremony before he does surgery. You don't want him to be messing around in the trash and picking up stuff, be like, oh, I'm going to eat that, and then, oh, by the way, no gloves, I'm going to do your surgery. You're like, no, thank you, see you later. That's not cool. So that's the spirit or the idea of this offering. It is about purifying and it is about cleansing. And you are not to enter into the presence of God as a priest, which is what the focus here is. Do not enter into God's presence undefiled. Don't enter into the operating room with your hands unwashed, doctors. Don't enter into the holy of holies or even the holy place without being ceremonially washed. They're teaching that we, because of our sin, because of the brokenness of this world, because of all kinds of things, we become dirty or defiled. But praise God, Jesus is the ultimate sin offering. You might remember these passages, Romans 8 verse 3 is one of those clear teachings in the Bible that show you that Jesus is actually somewhat literally the sin offering who cleanses us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then this phrase right here, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, the argument there is that Jesus is for being a sin offering. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 5.21 has the same concept right here. For our sake, he made him to be sin, or you could translate it, to be a sin offering so that we would become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, guests, friends, whoever you are here today, is Jesus your sin offering? That's what he came to do. That's how he has offered himself before God the Father. When you embrace that there is no other offering that will do, there is no other offering that will cleanse, there is no other power but the blood of Jesus to wash away the stain of our sin, then you will experience the good news of Romans 8, verse 1. Now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can already know now the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account. This will help you live with freedom, with joy, with excitement, with gladness. Not only are your sins forgiven, good news, 
Very good news. Sins being forgiven, we've got lots of them. We collect them all up in this room for all of our lives and we put them in a pot. The pot's going to be full. That's a lot of sin. That would be good to have all those debts paid for and forgiven. Better news. Sins are forgiven and cleansing and righteousness posited into your account. No condemnation. Your standing before God is that you are pure, white as snow. So then, what can wash away our sins? Answer? I almost heard you. What can wash away our sins? What has already washed away our sins? The precious flow, oh precious, is the flow that makes us white as snow. The sin offering is fulfilled in Christ and he cleanses from that damned spot. If you remember Macbeth, and she keeps washing her hands of the guilt and the stain of her murder. Jesus can wash even the deepest stains of your deepest sins. Embrace it. Believe it. Trust it. Let all of your service to God be transformed by it. Let's move on to chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Speaking of being guilty, this is the guilt, or as we will see, the reparation offering. We'll start in verse 1 of chapter 7. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering. And its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all of its fat shall be offered, the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it, and the priest who offers may any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offered uh, and every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among the sons of Aaron. As Nate taught us last week, so this was last week's message found in Leviticus chapter 5 and 6. This is the guilt offering. It is also translated or called the reparation offering. And the reason we say that is because, as you'll see on the screen, reparation means to make things right, to make amends. Anytime that you have done something that has hurt a relationship, you can either just let that awkward tension stick around, or you can try and smooth things over and make things right. This offering is about making things right with God. Your sin has devastating consequences against God himself and against God's property, his people, his world, the things that he gave you. Many times our sins are slaps in the face. Nate talked about the treachery of sin, the devastation of the things we do. We think of it, oh, it's just one isolated event. It's not hurting anybody. Oh, no, it is. No matter what sin it is, no matter how you might think about it, sin has devastating, rippling effects. I love that image. I drew it in my notes. Sin is like that drop in the water. And it's not just the one splash. It's the ripples that go 
over the whole lake. That's what sin does. And Jesus has become our final guilt offering. This is what Isaiah 53 verse 10 says. Yeah? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes a guilt offering. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who bore sins and iniquities, the sheep that was led to the slaughter, that suffering servant, namely Jesus, he was, as Isaiah says, a guilt offering. The same exact language and words that we find here in our text in Leviticus. He is the ram that was substituted on the altar that took Isaac's place, if you remember Genesis 22. God did not do anything wrong. So therefore, he is the one taking initiative to make things right. How humbling is that for you to let sit and sink in? Think of a marriage difficulty, marriage problems, even if it's mostly one partner in the marriage. You can probably always fess up to like 5-10%, well, I probably could have handled that better or this better. Almost all of our human sins against one another. We can probably find some fault. Yeah, I probably could have done this better. God can't say that. He didn't do anything wrong. To make amends with us, we should be the one making initiative to be like, God, we need to get things sorted out. Why why didn't we take initiative to say, God, we should kind of work on this. Sorry, what did I do? That's not our stance. Our stance is dead in trespasses and sins. Our stance, Romans 3 says, is we're running away from God. There's no such thing as seekers toward God. We're continuing in our run against God. And God, in the reparation offering, seeks us out. He comes after us. He takes the initiative. And he wants to make things right with us. This is great. This is how good God is. And isn't it beautiful to see the layers of good news that this offering is? It's not just, oh, well, we sinned and the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. That was the one good part of the sermon. But how many more other good parts are there? He makes things right with us even though he didn't do anything wrong. Look at the verse one more time. Hebrews chapter 7. What is Jesus like as our high priest who is going on the initiative to make things right? How is he described? Blameless. Sinless did not need a sin offering like all the others. He is not like the priests that need daily again and again for his own sins. Instead, he offered one sacrifice once and for all because it was the most pure, the most spotless, the most costly, the most beautiful sacrifice that's ever been given. And God the Father said, we don't need another one after that. It's done. It is finished. It's paid. All paid for, all made right. You don't need to add to the cross. You should not take away from the cross. It is sufficient to make things right with God. Have you screwed things over with God? Yes, that's the answer. Is there a way to make things right? A glorious, resounding yes. He has made things right by offering a pure, spotless sacrifice in Jesus. It was effectual, it removes your guilt, and it reconciles you. If he did that for you, forgave all of your sins, reconciled your relationship with God, and not just for you as an individual, us as a humanity. He did that for all of us. Past, present, future sins, all sins. 
How can you go through your life saying, I love Jesus, he has forgiven me of my sins, turn around and say, I will not forgive you though. Father, mother, brother, sister, roommate, neighbor, will never forgive you. Jesus specifically hammers this point. You cannot say, I am forgiven by the Father with all that he has done to forgive us as humans and then turn around and say, but I won't forgive my neighbor. Do you see how the gospel of Jesus' forgiveness should transform your priestly service to God, namely your forgiveness of sins that you offer to others? The only way that you and I can turn to other people who have deeply hurt us, and I know that I don't know all of the ways you have been hurt, but I know the world well enough to know it hurts. And many of you have been hurt deeply. And what I'm asking you to do is very, very difficult. But look how difficult. He has already made this possible. He has already forgiven all of our sins. This is the source of strength to then turn and say, I forgive you. In the deepest possible pain, we can turn to our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our children who have gone wayward, and we can say, I love you, and I forgive you because Christ has forgiven me. I know of no other way to get that kind of strength. You find it, let me know. As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus has done everything possible to be at peace with us. This is why he tells us, if you're going to the altar in Jerusalem and you live three-day journey away, some town in Galilee, and you've just spent three days of money, time, finances, and whatever, to go to worship at Jerusalem, drop everything if you remember that you have a friend three days away that you need to make things right with. That's the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, Matthew. We covered this probably a year ago. Who knows? That's Jesus' teaching about priestly service to one another. Drop everything. Reconciling with your brother or sister, with your neighbor, your friend or family member is of uttermost importance to follow Jesus. Last but not least, the peace offering. It's a longer section. I'm going to trust you can read it. Let's review and close with this final offering. The peace offering it's from Leviticus chapter 7, from verse 11 to verse 38. The peace offering, well, guess what this one means? The peace offering. We'll, we'll just stick with that one. It's the word peace that means shalom, or it's the word shalom, and it means well-being. It means that not just, well, there's not war. It means that things are good, and everything is well with your soul, physically, emotionally, spiritually, just as well as you could imagine life being, that's shalom. Things are good with God. Things are good in my home and in my life. The peace offering is about you saying to God, I don't have to do this, but I want to. When you read the text, you'll notice it gives this key little word, if you offer this offering. Because as we covered this, you might remember, it's optional. You don't have to. You could have sinned. You could have not sinned. It could just be the middle of the day. It could be whatever. This is 
the teaching of the Bible that offering praises and worship to God can happen anytime you feel like you want to in your heart. There is no limit on the amount of offerings you could give God. And you will never outgive God, you will never outpraise Him. So, this offering teaches us that ultimately our service to God should be done with joyful celebration because. Our offerings are not just gifts to God, it is about communing in His presence. Have you heard that in this series? What's the whole point of the first several chapters of Leviticus? To make a way for God's people to be with God. To make a way for God's people to be with God. The peace offering embodies this joyful celebration of I just want to celebrate the goodness of God's presence. Do you ever feel that way? The joy in your heart of just, God, you're so good. I just thank you for fall leaves and beautiful weather. I thank you for my family. I thank you for food on the table. I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude. Do you ever feel overwhelmed with joyful gratitude at what God has given just your everyday stuff? Then, on any moment of any day, even when everything's been taken away, you still have the gospel, which means any day, even the darkest of days, You can turn to God and say, God, I'm thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for the gospel. I may have lost everything in my life, but I have not lost my hope in Christ. You'll also notice that it is the fat that is given in the peace offering when you read it. You might remember us talking about the peace offering being giving the best parts to God. The fat would have been the juiciest, delicious, best tasting parts of the animal. That's the idea of the peace offering. Don't just give God the scraps, all the dung and the extras. No, that stuff gets thrown outside the camp. God gets the best. And so this should inform our understanding of Jesus and our service as priests. Jesus is the fat. He is the best part. He is the best offering. He is the most worthy offering, the most blameless. And he joyfully celebrates the idea of dying on a cross, rising again from the dead, and ascending up to the Father and rejoicing with Him for all of eternity. Do you think that you are worthy of joyful celebration? Or is your opinion of yourself or this world too low? Self-esteem is not brought up by you looking down deep into yourself and saying, I'm good. Self-esteem and self-worth is brought by looking up to the heavens and seeing that when one sinner repents, all of heaven is rejoicing. All of heaven is having a celebration, a joyful peace offering, you could call it. They are rejoicing at the day when a sinner repents. Sinner, if you have repented, It is worthy of joy and celebration in the heavens. So think of yourself the way the angels do. Think of yourself the way the Father and the Son and the Spirit do. That could kill some self-esteem problems and lowly thoughts about ourselves if we would look up and not in. Your priestly service to God is a duty, but it is a joyful duty and an amazing privilege. I like when Nate when he was preaching this message, he says, it is like getting married. He said, Xavier, how many more days? 
34. Now, is Xavier showing up on his wedding day a duty? Yeah. I mean, if you don't show up, like, you're not going to get married. He's, he's got to show up. But it's a joyful duty. It's a blessed duty. He is counting down the days. It didn't even take a second, did it? 34 days. Do you see the picture? Being in the presence of God, Revelation chapter 19, is the wedding of God and humanity. Heaven and earth are going to come together like a great wedding banquet. The peace offering, you should just think, all right, how do I remember it? Wedding banquet. The reception of a wedding day. The glorious celebration of two coming together and finally saying, yes, we will stick together forever and ever and ever. That's what we have to look forward to. There is so much joy in being in the presence of God. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is joy. Does that mark our priestly service to God? Is it just duty? Well, I got to go to church. Got to serve the children. Got to help with this and that and serve my wife, serve my husband. Got to serve the children at my house. Got to do this. Got to go to Rand Grove this Saturday because that's just what we got to do. Or is it priestly joy? A privilege that you have the ability to pray right now. You have the ability to reach the throne room of God right now. He invites you. He demands it. It is a duty to pray. It's a joyful one. Don't take it for granted. And this, my friends, concludes our mini-series of Leviticus 1-7. through So let's take up our privilege and our duty and let's pray to God and give him thanks. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks now. We offer up praise and thanks continually. We do it as our duty in obedience to you, God. But we do it with joy in our heart knowing that you have taken initiative. You have made things right with us. You have forgiven us of our sin. You have washed us. You have taken away the guilt. You have reconciled and restored our relationship. You have done everything that was needed and much more. You are the greater and the better priest, the greater and better offering and sacrifice. And what could we say now that would somehow capture how great and glorious you and your work and your salvation is? We are lost for words, God. Thank you. We offer our thanks, we offer our praise, and we stand in awe of who Christ is and how he has been revealed to us in the book of Leviticus. Thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a chance now to take tribute, take a tribute, make a tribute offering to God by taking the bread and the grain the bread in the cup, it will be passed around, and as it's being passed around, we're going to sing a song, we're going to remain seated. Hopefully it's clear. If you're a guest or visitor, we're glad that you're here today, but what we're about to do is make an offering to God out of the sincerity of our hearts to say, God, we want to give our whole self to you, and we want to remember with great loyalty and allegiance who Jesus is as our king, as our priest, 
And so we take the bread and the cup in honor of that. If that's not you today, don't feel any shame or pressure to just pass the elements by. There's no point in taking this in some sort of ritual fashion to think that's going to serve some sort of brownie points with God. It, it does not work that way. God wants a sincere, devoted heart. Internal obedience and joy leads to external obedience. So let's do that now as we joyfully, thankfully take up the duty of remembering Jesus on the cross. The bread and the cup are double stacked, so as you're receiving them and you are going to take, take them both and then hold them until the song is finished. We'll take them together one by one.
we are to remember and give allegiance and loyalty. And that's what we do now as we reaffirm our covenant together as 